<laughs> Hi, I'm Hans Haus. I'm the Residency Director for Emergency Medicine. This mainly consists of cases, so we're going to go through a couple of cases. First case uh, as a historical case. And I say historical case because hopefully this, um, this disease won't exist uh, pretty soon. <laughs> so way back in um, the Greek ages, an Athenian merchant travels to Alexandria and while there decides to drink some water from the Nile. Seven months later, maybe on the return to, to Greece, he notices an itchy papule on his lower leg. Um, la later, while bathing in the water, the papula erupts and this little like worm emerges. And then like this chronic ulcer develops around it. Any, any idea what this is? So he goes back to Alexander for treatment because there's actually, there's, there's healers in the street that actually will treat this disease. And a local healer applies this, this rod to the worm and, um, and makes a little, gives a little turn in. He says, all right, come back a, a week from now and, and we'll turn a little bit more. And every week he comes back, he makes it half turn. And for weeks and weeks and weeks it goes on. Finally, they get this whole worm wrapped around the rod and the worm is extracted uh, manually. And you know what it is? So this is the guinea worm or guinea fireworm. Which is, the, which is also known as Dracula lensis. And it is, um, it is a disease that it probably will, won't exist um, in the future, or it doesn't exist anymore, because it is easily, the transmission is easily prevented by simply filtering water. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, it's described as a fireworm. Because if you just pull the worm out completely, um, you don't do the very gradual extraction, that worm rupture and you get a massive uh, inflammatory reaction, um, and uh, and you get anaphylactic reaction to that to the to the warm contents, and you get this horrible burning pain. The reason it can be controlled is that it is uh, the copepods um, in fresh water. So the little the little microbes in fresh water they carry the the larvae of this worm, and it's transmitted by water. So if you go into water and you have this in your leg, and you wade in the water, that's why it's always in the lower leg, it's where people are wading. It erupts into the water, it spreads the larvae around, picked up by the cobots, cobots go out somewhere else, someone else drinks the water, and the larvae develop in your intestines, migrate to the lower leg where they repeat the cycle. Simply by filtering the water and filtering out those cobots, you can actually prevent the transmission. Yeah. Um, it, something erupts in the water. So you get, you get this like, you know, the, 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 your lesion breaks open, and that's where the, where the worm starts to excrete its, oh, its larvae. But the, the head of the worm is, is the, as appears, but the rest of the worm is all, is all wound up inside the leg. The reason this is important, or relevant for you guys, is this symbol here. What is that symbol? Caduceus. Well, not the caduceus. Caduceus, yeah, yeah. caduceus is, is, is Hermes. Escapalian frog. So hey, this is the staff of Escapalia. Who was Escapalia? Is the guy who invented frogs for Iowa City? No. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, medical history is not real big around here. Good. All right, that's fine. Greek mythology, first physician, anyone, anyone? Yeah. Bueller, Bueller? Okay. Ask, uh, Hippocrates was the first physician in recorded history, or the most famous physician in recorded history. And it's, uh, in, in, in Hippocrates' writings, it's still handed down and still used today. Escapolis was is a mythologic first physician who was this amazing healer. And he was so, so good at healing that um, he cured people and he delayed people's actual death and the fates 
got all screwed up. The fates like who who measure the, the thread of life, they got confused and the threads of life were getting tangled up and they went to Zeus and said, this guy is really screwing up our business. Uh, you got to do something. He is too good of a healer. So Zeus struck him down. Well, his staff, the Sepulchre staff, serpent wrapped around a stick. Now the serpent is a, is a symbol of healing for a long time for a lot of different reasons, but it just happens to look just like a rod wrapped around a direct lensosmore. Now this is not the caduceus. What's the caduceus? Staff of Hermes. Staff Hermes, good. What does it look like? It's got two snakes, right? And, and wings, okay. And uh, who was Hermes? He's really, very fast. In fact, when he went, and when the Romans took over, he became Mercury. He was the messenger of the gods, and his job was guiding the souls after death onto Hades, onto the afterlife. This is the symbol of the greatest healer in mythologic history, Sepulchus' staff. Yet the symbol that we've all adopted is the caduceus, which is actually the stick of the person who carries people to their death. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, let me know. So, again, death is part of life. Remember, we need to be really compassionate around death and, you know, uh, all that sort of good stuff. So, anyway, that's her job. Moving on. Mother brings in, this is something you might already see if you haven't seen it already. Mother brings in two children aged four and two for being too fidgety. I mean, they just move all over the place, and they just can't sit still. Obviously, they've got, they must have ADHD, and she wants you to write a prescription for Ritalin. Both children are observed to be constantly moving and scratching their butts. Any ideas? Penworms. yes. Enterobus vermicularis. Woohoo! Small white worms. You actually can see them with the naked eye. Um, and they cause anal pruritus. Um, it is uh, easily transmitted uh, between siblings, especially in daycare settings. And what you can see is that um, is the eggs then will excrete to the perianal skin. That scratching then will rub those, those eggs right in, into the skin and you get kind of this auto infection. So it's easily treated with albendazole or mabendazole. Okay. This is a very common case that I saw lots and lots and lots of when I was in Los Angeles. 19 year old male from Mexico. He's brought in by his family for his first time seizure. Previously healthy. No medical problems. No HIV risk factors. He has multiple relatives that have epilepsy. You do your neuro exam, he's postictal, but he's recovering. Otherwise, non-focal, rest of the exam is totally normal. Okay. You do a CT scan because that's part of your routine workup for um, first-time seizure. Of course, it would be a CT with and without contrast, right? Yep. Good. And this is what you see. Anyone want to describe those findings? So some calcifications, multiple, small, and one, one significant cystic structure. And we see a scolex in there? And we see a scolex? No, I don't, but a good MRI would. So this is tinea psoum, um, and that's an example of neurocystitrichosis. So the worm, the organism is tinea psoum. It's a pork tapeworm. You're the predator. You are, as a human, you're the predator. You go and you kill the pig and you eat the pig. Okay, we're islands, we do that a lot except for a few of us not here. 
But the rest of us islands actually kill and eat the pigs. So then the pork worm, which is the pork, sorry, the tapeworm, which is in the muscle of the pig, will develop in our gut. Okay, then we get the pork tapeworm. Pork tapeworm develops in our gut. It gets really, really long. It starts shedding off its little egg pieces. Um, it goes into our stool. The stool goes in the ground. The pig eats the stool. The pig gets pork tapeworm in this muscle. Okay. But if we eat the stool that we've just excreted, if you eat the stool that we just excreted, the, the teniosolum, the worm, thinks that you're the pig. And it tries to go to the pig muscle. And it gets confused because it can't find pig muscle. There's no pig muscle in humans. Well, most humans. So it moves all over the place trying to find a place to go, and it ends up in the muscles and the brain and other places as well. And this is cystic cirrhosis, or, or it's in the brain, neurocystocytosis. It's an accidental infection where you get kind of this, you're the, the, the wrong host. So when would you ever eat human feces? It's contaminated food, okay? So you could be, you could never eat pork, you could never touch pork in your entire life. The person preparing the food for you eats pork, you can get neurocystocytosis. In fact, there was an outbreak in New York among Hasidic Jews versus Zarkosis because their housekeeper ate a lot of pork and had this worm. What you do actually, if you identify neurocystocytosis, most of the time the patients we dealt with, most of the time we just treat them as if they had epilepsy. And in Mexico and Los Angeles, it's considered the number one cause of epilepsy. Um, higher, than, higher than idiopathic is uh, neurocystocytosis. So we just treat them for the epilepsy. If you catch it at a phase where it's early enough, you can treat it, although that causes an inflammation when the, when the worm dies, and that can be a little bit uncomfortable for the patient. Yeah? No. If, it, it depends on the stage of where, where the worm is at. If the worm is still viable, or still has it formed the skull, it hasn't been killed off by the body's own immune system, you can treat it. If it's really massive infection, you get lots of them, you really kind of to treat it because the patient the other can't function otherwise. It's a really difficult process to do that, but that can be done. And you actually give steroids and the, the, um, and the uh, antiparasitic at the same time. But if most of the time, in, the, in this case, for example, here, you're going to catch it where it's already calcified, where you've got this little calcified dot where the worm is long dead and to be killed by the body, but it creates a focus in the brain, which, which creates epilepsy. Any questions on that guy? Good. 48-year-old female presents with, uh, to the emergency department with nausea, cramps, and abdominal pain. Um, she says, boy, I need to see Dr. Jolin, or, you know, uh, can you give me a referral to this digestive disease clinic, because I've just got, I've just got irritable bowel or something. Her past medical history includes multiple episodes of pancreatitis and small bowel obstruction. Okay, sounds like a Jolin patient. While waiting to be seen, she vomits up a giant earthworm right there in the ER. Real case. That triage goes into a bowl, into one of those uh, emesis basins. And they bring this into you and say, hey, look at what this, this person just barfed up. <laughs> if you vomit up a large, basically earthworm-sized thing out of your body, yeah, you're probably going to get plenty of attention. This is, of course, Ascaris lumbricoides, which is the largest human um, 
uh, parasite. Uh, it is, uh, as you can see, it, it actually can be the size of an earthworm. Um, it is very, very common. Uh, normally asymptomatic, you actually may even have this and don't know it. Uh, usually acquired by eating eggs on contaminated lettuces. Um, the life cycle is really kind of bizarre. Does anybody know the life cycle for this thing? It's, it, I don't understand it. It's, yeah, so you eat the, you eat the eggs. And the eggs develop in your stomach. And then you, you cough up the eggs, and then it goes into the lungs. And you actually respirate the eggs. And then it develops in the lungs. And this is actually where you get this uh, Loeffler syndrome, which is kind of this um, asymptomatic reaction to, um, to the eggs developing in your lungs. The larvae develops in your lungs, migrates from the lungs into the bloodstream, floats around the bloodstream, ends up in the small intestine. And that's where it completes its life cycle, develops in the adult worm, and then sheds the eggs from there. Now, why does it bother going to the lungs when it could just, just stay in the stomach and it'll get past to the small intestine automatically? It has been associated. The only time you actually, it actually presents uh, symptomatically is when it causes intestinal obstruction. Occasionally, biliary obstruction, that would be rare. But the most common reason that you see this is just someone actually happens to host the worm and they're going to be pretty freaked out. If you actually, yeah, I think everybody's probably seen this picture. Yeah, <laughs> Every textbook. Um, if you actually treat someone with a large infection, yeah, you get a bunch of worms that come out, which is nasty. Yeah, got it. Um, again, usually, no, it will not clear on its own. It is usually asymptomatic. Usually, they just you just have it, and you don't even know you had it. Um, now, it, right, it, well, because to get this worm explosion here, you've given the you've given the uh, an antiparasitic, uh, usually albendazole, it kills the worms. The, then the worms will come out. Okay. If the worms are normally alive, they just they they're happy to sit in your intestine and, and, and eat whatever you eat, and they're they're happy and fine. They don't want to cause you any problems. That's that's a that's a little bit. That's a different worm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Though. They have a big sucker head thing. Yeah. Five-year-old boy f from rural Alabama. Okay. You see rural Alabama and like eating soil like on the boards. Then that's pretty much this case. Here you go. His his problem is by his mother because he he's weak, he's lethargic. He just I mean he doesn't look that good. He looks pale. His vitals are fine, normal normal physical exam, but his hemoglobin is seven point eight. His MPD is seventy two, with a high REW. What does that tell you? So microcytic anemia, probably iron deficiency, but boy that's kind of strange for a five year old boy to have iron deficiency. Now if a woman of childbearing age has iron deficiency anemia, we say okay no big deal. It's probably because of menses. When someone else has iron deficiency anemia, there must be a blood loss somewhere. Maybe if it's a male, we think about maybe ulcers or something like that. But when a young child has a microcytic anemia, what's the first thing we should think of? Lead. Very good. Lead. Not worms. Lead. In the days. So that's what you're, you're definitely going to be getting a lead balance on this patient. Outside the United States, probably more common. Um, this, this worm is probably more common cause of iron deficiency anemia. Um, and the, the remaining cases in the United States tend to be in the southeast. What's the worm that causes this? Okay, it's a hookworm, the Cater americanus. And there's other types of hookworms as well. In this case, um, the eggs are excreted in, in, uh, uh, in the feces. Um, the eggs hatch and mature in the soil. It's acquired by walking on the soil with bare feet. The, the worms then go into the, into the, into the skin. 
um, they, they migrate into, into the intestines where they develop and they do hook on to the, uh, to the intestines and they can actually physically drain blood each day. They're basically like little vampires. Um, if you have one or two, you're never going to know you had it. If you've got a bunch, you could potentially develop iron deficiency anemia, as in this case. If you would get a human hookworm that goes into the, into the feet, because you develop this, this disease. But if you walk on the, on the beaches of the Caribbean, especially Jamaica or, or, or other places, you can get dog and cat hookworms that think you're a dog and cat and they go into your feet. So we talked about how synurosis or kosis is an accidental infection. So if you get a hookworm, which is an accidental infection, goes into your feet, you up what? So like the pork tapeworm gets confused and tries to look for the, for the pig muscle and find it. The dog tapeworms try to go in your legs and they try to find the dog gut and they can't find it and they migrate around your skin. And you get cutaneous larva migrants. It's the migrating larvae form of the hookworm. Causes a very itchy, serpiginous reaction. I've got a picture of that in my next, in my next talk, too. This is a 28-year-old male from Sudan. Um, has family here in Iowa. Uh, was recently, recently moved here. Presents to the ER with painless intermittent hematuria. Okay. So an older male with painless intermittent hematuria, what do you think of? Cancer. But this is a young person, 28-year-old. His vials are normal. Um, on exam, he's got hepatosplenomegaly. And you look at his urine, and it's just a lot of red cells. Creatinine's totally normal. He does not have a nephritic syndrome. He doesn't have a nephritic, uh, he doesn't have glomerular nephritis. He's got normal blood pressure, normal creatinine. He's got red cells, but not a lot of white cells. What is this? Schistosomiasis. Schistosomiasis. So when it starts off, urine is clear. By the time the, the urine is at the end, then you give the, tend to get the stuff. What, do you guys know about the three, three cup tests for urine, for, for hematuria? Hear about this? Okay. So in an evaluation of hematuria, you can get kind of an idea of the source if you know at what point in the nation process or micturation process you're getting the blood. If the blood comes out only at the beginning, you basically pee in three cups. And the blood is only in the first part. If, you only come, if the blood only appears at the, at the initiation of the stream, that suggests that the blood source is probably in the urethra itself. Okay, it's distal. Because once the stream starts going, you basically move out the blood that's collected there and then you're pretty much okay. If, however, the blood tends to, that you're normally, that your urine is clear at the beginning and only appears bloody at the very end, the, the source is probably the bladder. Because um, the new urine that just came into, into the bladder, that's fine, it's not mixed with blood. And as your bladder contracts and you push out the end of your urine, the end of your crushing of urine, that's where you get the blood. So it's in the termination of the stream. So the terminal stream is where you get the blood. However, if you have the urine, if you have blood in all three cups, if you have if you have urine in the whole process, if you have blood, blood in the whole process, where is the probable source of the bleeding? Yeah, the kidneys. Because as soon as the blood is, as soon as the urine is getting into the, the blood, that's where the blood's, blood's coming up. So this is schistosoma, schistosoma hematobium. There's two sides of schistosomas. 
It is a trematode, which is a, a, fluke, time, a fluke parasite. The larvae will enter your skin while you're swimming or wading. Um, and, and the process of going through the skin, that causes a reaction there. Okay. If you were to swim in Lake Moali, for example, you may get a reaction in your skin from these, from the cystomycin larvae swimming through your body. However, this surfer's itch occurs all over the place, not just in, in places where there's, where there's this, this type of, of uh, parasite. In fact, you can get this reaction even in Iowa, in swimming in Lakes of Iowa, because there are bird schistosomiasis out there. We talked about the second, the accidental infection. Remember the, the cystercosis? And then we talked about the, um, uh, the, 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 the dog hookworm, okay? So if you have an accidental infection of bird schistosomiasis, larvae go through your skin, get a reaction to your skin, the larvae then die, don't do anything, don't cause an infection in your body because they're the wrong type of animal. Surface itch or swimmers itch, you get a reaction on your leg, you don't get an actual infection. But if you're in Africa, you can actually get the actual human schistosomiasis um, and there's other types as well. Uh, the Cystomyces japonicum and Mekongi both occur, um, Mekongi mostly in Southeast Asia, both occur, can, can occur in Africa, uh, have a similar cycle. They end up in the, in the colon, whereas hematoma ends up in the bladder. And this is cured with praziquantel. Uh, Yama fever is the, is the disease that you get when you're actually getting the actual infection. It's, that's very rarely seen. Right, the building aspidon changed the distribution of this disease because you created a large area of still water. And this is actually true of drama projects throughout Africa. And doing that, um, you are creating habitat for the, for the snail. We'll talk about the snail in the next talk, but the snail is an important intermediary in this life cycle. And yeah, um, in, in, in some parts of Africa, it's considered so common. This is male menarche, is, the first, is your first theory material. Okay, it's a weird case. Um, saw this one in, in, in all of you. 35-year-old female from Peru. Um, she comes in complaining of right-sided pleuric chest pain. She's had it for about a week. Um, no fever, no cough, shortness breath. Just hurts when she takes a breath on the side. Obviously, we work out for P, D-dimer's negative. She also has riper quadrant pain, riper quadrant tenderness. She happens to be very fond of dogs. You see something in the... Just read the film. You see nothing, you don't, you don't see a liver on here. This is Jessica Shray. What do you see? Okay. So you got diaphragm right here. Then you got kind of, well, not quite sure where the diaphragm is here, but there's probably some sort of structure. But what you can see, you can see a little, you can see they have a little dome right here. You kind of get this sense that there's maybe a fluid structure, maybe a um, fluid level, possibly. So you want to think about maybe an abscess, maybe a lung abscess possibility. A really weird looking lung cancer would be possible too. So of course the next step is going to get a CT scan. I can't even make this out. Let's see. You're looking right at the diaphragm level. You don't see air in this cut. There is air on another, another cut. Yeah. So this is a, a, a ring enhancing um, spherical mass in the right lower lobe. Maybe, maybe liver. Can't, can't really tell in this picture. This is a cyst, a hydatid cyst from Enchinococcus. Another example of an, of an accidental host. 
usually develops in liver or lung. Actually, people can live with this for a long period of time before they really get a um, condition. Uh, then they, they get that, when they get the mass that's big enough, then they may present because of that. If the cyst ruptured, however, it can be very severe and can cause anaphylaxis. Um, the, um, when I say the accidental host, this is a dog cyst uh, parasite. And it's normally transmitted um, from the dog feces into other dogs. But if you are really, really close to your dog, and your dog then, I don't know, eats feces and then decides to kiss your face, you could potentially get this disease. There is a tribe in Kenya that use um, dogs as basically, they have a very close relationship with their, their canines, and they actually um, basically kind of assign a dog to a child as soon as you kind of have this you know, dog around. And it's basically your, your nurse. And basically, the dog cleans up for the kid and everything like that in ways. And there's a really, really high rate of high dad cysts among this tribe. So, interesting. And of course, um, I let my play with my kid all the time because that's cool. So, hopefully, my Sophie won't be getting gynecologist anytime soon. You, you really don't want to puncture these things. And so, if, yeah, if you were to, not sure what it was, and if you were to biopsy the, the lesion, you'd be in big trouble. In fact, the, the, the treatment, um, part of the treatment is surgery, surgical, remove it, but you've got to be very careful from it. You've got to move, move it in, in, in whole. Um, we have a 38-year-old female from Jamaica. She is a known uh, HIV-positive patient. Um, she, her last CD4 count was 114, so she is immune-compromised. She's complaining of diarrhea with mucus and blood. She also has cough and dyspnea and a 30-pound weight loss. She's very ill, very dehydrated. Um, she's hypotensive. And labs include a, CD, uh, um, uh, a CBC, which shows no eosinophilia. So no eosinophilia, and they can't be parasitic, right? But what would we be doing in this talk? Yes, and that's a good, good thought. So you, you think about somebody from a tropical region who's got diarrhea, crazy, diarrhea with mucus and blood, and um, failure to thrive. That sounds like that sounds that sounds like amoeba. Um, amoeba causes a chronic type diarrhea. I think it's a good thought. Um, in this particular case, um, the thinking was that she had um, like disease. And I think this patient was actually started on steroids because they, they actually thought they actually had disease. Amoeba wasn't this patient. We had another patient we had that actually did, that this happened to, and so we pressed the immune system even further. Yes. Okay. Turns out she has strong aloides sericorallis. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, it is an intestinal nematode. Um, it is, again, like the hookworm, you acquire the infection through the bare feet. You can also auto-infect by ingesting your own larvae, which is not too hard to do. If you have somebody who's immunocompromised, whether they have HIV or they've been given steroids because they think, that they think they've got inflammatory bowel disease, um, you get this hyperinfection syndrome, where you don't have to like do anything to get to reacquire the infection. As soon as the eggs are passed, they're acquired by the body, and they go back in, and you get a secondary cycle. In this case, the eosinophil count is so low because of the absolutely massive numbers of larvae coursing through this person's body, and I mean everywhere. Every tissue that was cultured, and every site that was biopsied, had larvae in it. There were no eosinophils because 
all these Seinfelds have been, have been done everything they could do, and there was nothing left in the computer for them. The patient was already immune compromised anyway, so the, so the immune system wasn't that, that, that pronounced anyway. Immune response wasn't very pronounced anyway. So this is a pretty severe infection that can, this usually really, uh, leads to death. So, summary. Hellenists cause a lot of different diseases. Fortunately, not a lot of symptomatic diseases in the United States. In fact, most helmet infections in general are asymptomatic. The number one cause of epilepsy in Los Angeles is neurosurgicosis. If you see something on the boards, that, if you see a kid from Alabama who's anemic on the boards, that usually means they're talking about hookworm. If you see hematuria and the person's from Africa, that usually means schistosomiasis. And think about hyperinfection syndrome with strong voice. Um, where you may see it is someone who is um, given steroids for IBD and actually end up having uh, uh, strong aloides. This is why you absolutely have to have a biopsy confirmed diagnosis of IBD before you start steroids. That's why we don't do empiric therapy for IBD. Questions? <coughs>